0: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of and audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision?
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert and I'm Sarah Dowdy and something you may not know is that Sarah and I are actually friends in real life and we had a class together in college with one of our very favorite professors, Dr. Hubert McAlexander. And that's where I was introduced to the poet Hart Crane. And Crane had a fascination with a certain cinema star, so much that he wrote a poem about him and once had the chance to meet him, where they partied till dawn. And if you're wondering who this man was, he is a listener favorite, we've gotten so many requests,
2: for Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin was known to us for his Little Tramp character, which PBS's American Masters described as a well-meaning man in a raggedy suit with cane always found himself wobbling into awkward situations and miraculously wobbling away. He was also known for being
1: a perfectionist to the point of complete control freak and possibly the greatest
2: actor ever. So let's get to know our man. Charlie Chaplin was born Charles Spencer Chaplin in London on April 16th, 1889. And his mother, Hannah, was an actress who was also mentally ill. Um, she had some bizarre stories about her her life pre-Chaplin. She had one about eloping with this lord and living on a South African plantation, which is how she got Charles's half-brother, Sydney. But whatever, you know, it's maybe true, maybe not. But either way,
1: she ended up marrying one
2: Charles Chaplin, who was
1: a singer, shortly after Sydney was born, which was a bit of a scandal to his family. And our Charlie Chaplin didn't think this chaplin was his father uh, for the rest of his life. And indeed, Hannah did have a weakness for affairs with men, so who knows. But they separated when he was young. And although the couple had been successful for a time, both on the stage they ended up very poor. They weren't even sleeping in beds. His mom turned to evangelical religion and wasn't very good with money. And his father was alcoholic and estranged and bad at giving
2: them money. So the boys, little Sydney and Charles, end up in a workhouse. And Chaplin later said it wasn't so bad. He just daydreamed about being in Parliament. But from there, he moves on to an orphanage where they really try to crush his spirit So they ended up in more workhouses and then living with their father, the drunk,
1: and then living with their mother in bad circumstances, basically as dirty little ragamuffins. So you have to picture him here, you know, he's once part of the middle class with a very successful father. And then he's poor and ashamed of his poverty with a semi-famous alcoholic father who didn't really support them and died when he was young. And then we also have a mother who loved him but couldn't take care of him and spent a lot of her time in mental hospitals. So this is where Charlie Chaplin came from.
2: And uh, kind of like some of our vaudeville stars we mentioned earlier, these this sad kind of childhood eventually drives the kids to the stage. And, Young Charlie was a clog dancer with the eight Lancashire lads, which is a great way to enter show business, I think. He also learned a lot about
1: pantomime, but his break came through his brother, Sid. He played a role in Jim, A Romance of Cocaine, and then in a touring play, Sherlock Holmes, he played a
2: cockney boy in both. But by the time he was 17, he had hit that a kind of rough period for a child star, you know, too old to play kids' parts, too young to play adults, and we know how that usually turns out, but he manages to pull through and he ends up in a production called Casey's Court Circus, and that's where he accidentally discovered how to be funny. He came out on stage very serious
1: and had this serious rendition planned of the role he wanted to play. But everything went wrong. His hat fell down over his face and he dropped things and he realized that you laugh because it's unexpected. Those little nervous shocks make you laugh.
2: And soon enough, he's on the vaudeville stage and he makes his way to the United States where he becomes a star. And famous words from the head of his touring company, Fred Carno, were, keep it wistful, gentlemen, keep it wistful. And that's something that when he... He does forget that. His career kind of goes astray. Right, but that later becomes such a part of the Tramp character. Making it funny, but but sweet.
1: And he gained this reputation for being eccentric, but that didn't keep him from being signed with Max Sennett and Keystone Studios, which is where he would start making film. And he never thought that he'd stay in film. He thought it was a bit of a fad that would go out of style. But he starts acting, and his first film experience isn't what he expected. He thought movies would be like a stage play. You would act it out in front of a camera, you know, film the whole thing, and then... Start to finish. That would be it. But, of course, that's not how it works. You film things out of order. Some of it's done very quickly, and he was really disconcerted by the whole thing. So, in this film, he basically just fell off a ladder. No one thought he was very good, and he wanted
2: to quit. But of course he doesn't, and he thinks of the character, the tramp. And remember that Chaplin had a lot of experience with a shift in class, you know, going from respectable middle class to living in the workhouse. And he tries to to keep some dignity in his portrayal of being poor. So The Tramp premieres in Mabel's Strange Predicament, which is actually a pretty risque film, and his early work is, is super twisted. You wouldn't, he's, it's not the tramp that you would think of. No, he's it's the entirely unlikable character in those early ones. But to give you an
1: idea of what his work pace was like, in 1914 alone, he made 35 short films, so, It was pretty crazy. And again, he wasn't used to how this whole system worked, which is part of the reason that made him so hard to work with. He was very resistant to direction, incredibly picky about how shots were set up, and he wanted constant reshoots, which was really expensive and just not the way that things were done.
2: But he does work on developing his comedy, bringing more empathy to it. And in 1915, he leaves Keystone for a higher salary with a company called Essanay. And he leaves them for way more money at the Mutual Company Film Corporation. His annual salary is $670,000. But we want to talk a little bit more about what he was
1: like to work with. As we'd mentioned before, he was very demanding, obsessed with every tiny detail. And every actor's performance. He wanted to walk through every scene and criticize what you were doing. He took hundreds of takes and fired actors right in the middle of things. But of course, it paid off because his films were great. He also did a lot of improvisation on a bare bones script, which is pretty cool.
2: And according to Time, he was the first and to date the last person to control every aspect of the filmmaking process, founding his own studio, United Artists, with Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, and D.W. Griffith, and producing, casting, directing, writing, scoring, and editing the movies he starred in. So that's, that's a, those are some big shoes to fill. The one man band, (laughs) yeah.
1: He was described as very intense and self-absorbed by most of the people who knew him, but he was also very sweet. And his comedy was smart. Again, according to PBS's American Masters, for Chaplin, the best way to locate the humor or pathos of a situation was to create an environment and walk around it until something natural happened. And that's a really good way of of summing up
2: a lot of his films. And we should talk about some of his most famous pictures. Chaplin's first feature film was The Kid from 1921, where most of us know that plot A woman abandons her baby, plans to kill herself, but she ends up becoming an opera star and always looking for her son. And the tramp has been raising the baby all along. Surprise! And it's a huge hit and really kicks off his film career. Another biggie is The Gold Rush, 1925. And
1: this was the film that he said he wanted to be remembered for. It's often considered his masterpiece. He made it with United Artists. And the plot is that He's the tramp again, this time during the gold rush in Alaska. He falls in love, and there's a famous scene where he eats his own boot for Thanksgiving dinner, which he carves and shares with the Big Jim character. You can see this clip on TCM.com if you search for it. I was thinking hot ham water might be better, but nobody asked me. This is
2: actually the film that I watched for a third grade class project on Charlie Chaplin, which I also made a clay sculpture that my dad still has. And you discovered that the movie Chaplin was perhaps not proper yeah, viewing for probably an not good for, like, an 8-year-old kid, but the
1: gold rushes. And his next big film was City Lights in 1930, and in this one, the tramp helps cure a blind girl of her blindness, and he's in love, but once she sees who he is, she isn't. And this is called by some the most romantic scene in film history. And it, this one was a compromise between the silent movies and the talkies. He held out for a long time in silent film and did well. It was a good bet. And in this one, he didn't talk, but there was music and sound effects. So it was kind of easing into the idea.
2: Yeah, he finally spoke in The Great Dictator from 1940. And he played two roles, a tramp-like Jewish barber and a Hitler figure named Adenoid Hinkle. And to give a little context, this is when a lot of people thought that maybe we should try to work with Hitler? And according to Roger Ebert, it prophesies the persecution of the Jews and the scenes of stormtroopers terrorizing the ghetto were thought at the time to go too far. What a sad joke that seems today. And in one
1: scene, the Hinkle character tries to rip up a bunch of spaghetti, saying that's how he'll destroy his enemies, but he can't actually do it. It is a A very cruel satire and very spot on. He's a wholly unlikable character. And the film starts off with this quote. This is the story of the period between two world wars, an interim during which insanity cut loose, liberty took a nosedive and humanity was kicked around somewhat.
2: And Chaplin was very political, as we'll learn a little bit later in the podcast. In 1947, he changed characters dramatically in Monsieur Verdoux. He didn't play the tramp, and instead he played a serial killer, actually one who marries women and kills them for their insurance money to support his own family, so basically a, a total bluebeard. The concept was actually Orson Welles's idea, and based on a real French serial killer, Henri Landrieu, but the film did not go over well, and around this time Chaplin was embroiled in a paternity suit and considered a communist, and there was all this controversy, and people... Didn't like him playing somebody who wasn't the tramp.
1: No, my favorite contemporary review just started with, Chaplin generates little sympathy. It's very dry, oh, yeah. is it? it? cracked me up. It, it is a very dark film. One line from Henri Verdu in the film says, Wars, conflict, it's all business. One murder makes a villain, millions a hero. Numbers sanctify, my good fellow. So it was anti-war, and it's also known as being an anti-capitalist film. Which, 1947, not a good time for that. And as far as his personal life goes, it was a bit messy, to say the least. In 1918, he married a 16-year-old, Mildred Harris. That didn't last. And in 1924, he married another teenager, Lita Gray, with whom he had a very bitter divorce. It's possible that their story inspired Lolita, according to the biographer who wrote Tramp, The Life of Charlie Chaplin, Joyce Milton, and
2: I got uh, some very good details from her book. He has another marriage to Paulette Goddard, and she describes him as being difficult but charming, and that genius can be rather difficult to live with. And he has several affairs, including one with Pola Negri, who Katie's interested in her. Yes, I really like her, and she wrote about it in
1: Memoirs of a Star. And you might remember a mention from our William Hurst podcast about him being on the yacht, with Marion Davies when there was that mysterious murder and that perhaps he was having an affair with Davies. Maybe.
2: But he also had a paternity suit with Joan Barry. And this is so strange, but the child was proven not to actually be his, you know, according to blood evidence. But blood evidence wasn't admissible in court. So the court makes him pay. And then a second trial happens where the exact same thing goes down. You know, they find it's not his child, but he still has to pay. So paying for someone else's
1: baby has to hurt a little bit. But the American public did not approve of this whole thing or his womanizing in general. And that's not all they didn't approve of. He had some very lefty politics, and he was investigated by the House and American Activities Committee for being a supposed communist sympathizer for some things he said during World War II. He thought we should help the Soviet Union on a second front.
2: And people didn't like that he hadn't seen service during World War II, or at least gone on some sort of entertainment tour like a a lot of the stars at the time did. And J. Edgar Hoover kept a 2,000-page dossier on him and had his name down as Israel Thonstein, a Jew,
1: which brings us to a question that's been asked many times, whether he was Jewish or not. And during his own time, he wouldn't say yes or no, because he said that would be playing into anti-Semite hands. But his political views were so controversial that after he went to London for one of his premieres, he wasn't allowed back into the United States. So he became a little bitter about this incident, a little disenchanted with the US, and he moved to Switzerland.
2: But You know, it's not a terribly unhappy ending in Switzerland. He marries Una O'Neill, who is the playwright Eugene O'Neill's daughter, when he's in his 50s and she's 18. He really does have a thing for for teenagers. teenagers. But they're quite happy together. They live in Switzerland and they have eight children. And he does end up returning to the U.S. for an honorary Oscar. and He gets a 12-minute ovation, which is to record the longest ovation at the Oscars.
1: And he ended up being knighted by the Queen in England. But he died Christmas Day in 1977. And his body was stolen from his Swiss cemetery by thieves. It was later returned and reburied. But still, exhumation in our podcast, exhumation and dream Visions. Always comes up. And to end where we started, we'll give you a quote from Hart Crane's Chaplainesque. We will sidestep and to the final smirk, dally the doom of that inevitable thumb that slowly chafes its puckered index toward us, facing the dull squint with what innocence and what surprise. And
2: that brings us to our listener mail today. This is an email from James, who is on his way to Vienna when he wrote us. He did mention that our podcast keeps him from losing his mind at work and called us saints, but. Saint Katie, I like that. Yeah, Saint Katie and Saint Sarah, but, um, he did write, in your podcast on the Book of Kells, you incorrectly said that the Latin Vulgate Bible is the basis for English translations today. Though it was a key source for the King James Version, translated in 1611, most of the King James Version as well as all modern Bible translations, use the Greek and Hebrew text as primary sources. The first English translation made by John Wycliffe was a translation of the Vulgate into English in 1382. So a little more background information for those monks scribbling away at the Book of Kells. And if you'd like to email us any
1: corrections or comments or suggestions, it's historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Missed in History or join our Facebook fan page. But we'd like to end with an interesting side note about our buddy Chaplin. Uh, his films might be good for your health to completely exaggerate the claims of one study. In the study, breastfeeding mothers watching Chaplin films laughed quite a bit, which upped their melatonin levels and decreased their baby's allergic responses. So, rent some chaplain. And if you're interested in learning a little more about that, we have an article called Does Breastfeeding Make Better Babies? by our own Molly Edmonds of Stuff Mom Never Told You. And you can search for it on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
0: You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually virtually
2: Zumo Play.